This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Today we find ourselves in Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> we're really going to spend the bulk of our time in verses 5 through 8. Um, we're going to start in, in verse number 1 in chapter 3. Just to give you a, a reminder, uh, chapters 2 and 3 written primarily to the Jewish believers that are at the church at Rome. Uh, end of chapter 2, he's reminding them, you're hypocrites, you're holding people to a standard that you yourself don't keep. You think your religious works and your religious um, things that you do make you better than the, the Gentiles, but it doesn't. Uh, then we get to the beginning of uh, chapter number one here. Uh, he says, hey, being a Jew is good for you only because you had the word of God available to you. Uh, and so uh, that's kind of where we find ourselves. Romans chapter three, verse number one. We'll really spend our time in verses five through eight here today. <laughs> Romans chapter three, verse number one. What advantage then hath the Jew or what profit is there of circumcision much every way chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God? For what if some did not believe? Shall their unbelief make the faith of God without effect? God forbid. Yea, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written, that thou mightest be justified in thy sayings and might overcome when thou art judged. But if our righteousness commend the unrighteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? I speak as a man. God forbid, for then how shall God judge the world? For if the truth of God hath more abounded through my lie unto his glory, why am I yet also judged as a sinner? And not rather, as we be slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come, whose damnation is just. As a kid, I remember wrestling with this idea that God is sovereign, he has a plan in place, but he also allows us free will. Uh, our, our teams got into a discussion uh, Wednesday night before last about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and how all this works together. Uh, that yes, man has free will to make his own decisions, but you can't violate the sovereignty of God. But I remember struggling with that as a teenager, this idea that if I messed up, I would forever mess up God's plan. Uh, if, if God said go left and I went right, then I, I messed up God's will for my life. I messed up God's plan for my life. My, the rest of my life is going to be a wreck. Uh, I remember as a, as a teenager, you know, thinking through like, well, if I marry the wrong person, what happens then? And there's that one person out there for me, and if I mess that up or if I miss that, then the rest of my life is over, and I can't ever fix it again, uh, and that God has a plan, but I just messed up God's plan. Please understand this, and this is kind of one of the things we'll get into a little bit later, is that God has a plan, yes, but you and I are not powerful enough to stop God's plan. That, that would automatically assume that you and I are more powerful than God or uh, we can do things that, that uh, God cannot fix, which could not be further from the truth. Uh, the, that's why we refute the idea of what's referred to as open theism. There is a God, uh, but he's kind of sitting and watching everything as it unfolds and making changes as he goes because he's trying to figure it out in real time as well. 
that God doesn't know what happens from the beginning and the end, and he's just kind of, uh, when you and I make mistakes, he's like, oh man, I didn't see that coming, I'll have to readjust things, and that's just not who God is. God has a plan that stretches from eternity past to eternity future. You and I are included in that, and within God's sovereign plan, he allows us free will to make our choices, and because he's God, he automatically knows what we're going to choose. So how does that factor into what we're talking about today, the choices we make, the sin that we do against God? Can we sin against God and God be glorified? Can we sin against God and it makes God look really good? Uh, Those arguments just on the surface don't make a whole lot of sense. And as we parse through the scriptures here this morning, we'll see that it makes absolutely no sense biblically whatsoever. It's important to know from the jump, though, that sin always dishonors God. 100% of the time. You can't get around this. Let me just say that there's never a time in life where it's okay to sin. Well, I can sin if if I'm really unhappy. I can sin if somebody sinned against me. Or I can sin in this situation because uh, of whatever reason. Or I can steal from my employer because they make so much money off of me that I deserve more. Things along those lines. It's never okay to sin. Sin always dishonors God. uh, And sin always hurts you. Sin always hurts you. Sin always hurts people around you. Every single one of us, if you've lived long enough have paid the consequences for someone else's sin. Whether it be your father, your mother, your brother, your sister, your children, they've made choices that have impacted you in some way, and you have received negative repercussions of someone else's sin. Because the Bible says this, every man will sin when he's drawn away of his own lust, and when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and when sin is finished, it brings forth, somebody help me, death. 100% of the time, sin ends in destruction. And so the argument that was being made by some of the folks in the church at Rome was we can actually sin and it glorifies God, believe it or not, which was crazy. Sin has separated you and I from God's presence. You and I are not born into the family of God. You and I are born in as enemies of God because of our sin. Our sin puts us on separate uh, sides from God, where we are the enemies of God, living in rebellion to God's law, rebellion to God's rules, living our own way, doing our own thing. And as we I kind of pre-read verse number 10 and onward, we see in chapter 3, uh, nobody seeks after God. Everybody's gone their own way. Everyone is living in rebellion to God. And so we cannot be called the children of God because we've sinned. And our sin has separated us from God. The Bible goes so far as to say this, that uh, God's ear is not so heavy that he cannot hear, and his hand is not so heavy that it cannot save, but your sins have separated you from your God so that he will not hear you. So sin has multiple, multiple detrimental effects in the life of anyone, any person who sins, it's bad. The primary thing that sin does outside of alienating us from God is it invites on us God's punishment. Anytime there is a law, there must be a consequence for those that break the law. God is no different. God has established his law. When you and I break God's law, it's called sin. When you and I sin against God's law, there are consequences that must be paid. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Because you and I have sinned against God, we deserve to die. That's our punishment. That's what we deserve. 
not just a physical death, but the Bible says there comes a day when we'll stand before God in judgment. Uh, the book of Hebrews says it's appointed unto man once to die. After that, the judgment, where we'll stand before a holy God and we will be judged according to our sin. And the Bible says that if we're guilty of our sin, we're cast away from God into a place called hell. Now, hell's a real place that burns with real fire for all of eternity. There's no second chances. There's no getting out. It is God's final judgment on sin. And if you and I die in our sin, that's where we'll spend eternity because that's what we deserve. But you see, God loves you and God loves me so much that he doesn't want us to go to hell. The Bible says God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so God made a way for you and I to be forgiven of our sin. Now, when we break God's law, God has a rule. Someone must die. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. So either you and I can die for our sins, which is bad, or someone else can die in our place, but the bottom line is somebody has to die. You see, I can't die for your sin because I've sinned against God. This church cannot die for your sins because that's not how it works. A person must die. But it has to be someone who has no sin debt, who owes God nothing, and the only person that that could be would be Jesus Christ. So Jesus was sent by God to become man. He was born in a manger in Bethlehem, and he grew into a young man, and then he grew into a full-grown man who traveled for three and a half years with a group of uh, unlikely characters who began preaching and teaching of the kingdom and repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, his Savior, and the truth of the gospel. And then he was punished, not for things that he had done wrong, but he was punished for things that we had done wrong. He was beaten, not for things that he had done wrong, but for things that you and I had done wrong. He was ultimately crucified, shed his blood, and died out of no fault of his own, but because of my sin and yours. And so he died as payment for our sin. Here's the most important thing over here in the world. You must do something with that payment for sin. You can either reject it, you're free to do that and say, nope, no problem, I'll take care of my sin on my own, or you can receive it and accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior. Jesus says in John chapter three, no man shall enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. The word born again means saved. You need to make sure that when you die, your sins are forgiven and your sin has been placed on Jesus, not yourself, because when you die, you'll spend eternity in hell. But Jesus has already suffered, bled, and died for our sins. And so being saved is not a matter of joining a church or coming forward at a church service or being baptized. It's about faith and repentance. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I believe that he's the only way to heaven. I believe that he died for my sins, and I'm asking him to save me and forgive me of my sins. And if you prayed that and truly believed it from the depths of your heart, you could be born again in a split second. You don't have to come forward at a church service. You don't have to pray with anybody. You just have to believe and receive And it's that simple because Jesus paid for our sins. Now, again, sin dishonors God because it makes a mockery of what Jesus has done. You see, Jesus came to save us from our sins. Jesus provided you and I an example as far as how we should live. What should you do when people are unkind? Or what should you do when uh, people betray you? Uh, What should you do when people say things about you that aren't true? Jesus gave us a lot of examples of how to live like that. 
Jesus gave some leadership principles in what he calls the sermon, or what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. The leadership principles that he gives are studied by leadership experts around the world that don't even believe in Jesus. It's that, that rich. But Jesus didn't come to just provide an example. He didn't come to provide leadership guidance. He came to save you from your sins. The book of Luke tells us that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. So those that are without Jesus Christ, those that are lost in their sin, he came to save you from your sin. Jesus was also punished for our sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 21 says, For he hath made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's probably one of the sweetest verses in all the New Testament. That Jesus Christ didn't just pay for my sin and yours, he became sin. And when he became sin, there's only one thing that God can do with sin, that's it. All all he can do is punish it. And so as Jesus Christ hung there upon the cross and became my sin, became your sin, the only thing that he could do was be punished. And as he hung there on the cross, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God the Father for the first and only time in eternal history before and after separated himself from his son and turned his back on his son. Why? Because his son had become sin. And in that moment, as Christ cried out, in agony and pain. The physical pain was bad for sure, but thousands of people were crucified throughout Roman history. Jesus cried out in a different cry. He cried out in spiritual agony. The Father had abandoned him, and God's full, unadulterated wrath was poured out upon Jesus Christ. Why? Because of my sin. Because of your sin. Because of the sins of the world. And God went to extraordinary lengths to deliver you and I from our sin. Now, again, God could have said at any moment, hey, hey, you guys, all your sin is just forgiven. Blanket forgiveness to everybody. Don't worry about it. I know I made some rules. I know I gave you some guidelines. You don't have to follow them. I'm just going to forgive you. But if God had done that, while it might sound nice on the surface, it would have violated God's justice. God can't make rules that have no ramifications. What's the use in having a rule? My, uh, my wife and my daughters had lunch down in Chinatown this past week, and uh, we parked in a garage, or parked in a parking lot, um, and we didn't pay. And so uh, I, I looked around, I didn't see anywhere to pay, and so I thought, I don't guess I gotta pay, and so we just left. And so came back from lunch, we had a little note under our windshield wiper, and I was just like, oh, man. And so I take the card out, I begin to read it, and basically says, this is a paid parking lot, you're supposed to pay before you park here, I'm marked off, you violated that you didn't pay. And at the bottom it says, next time uh, there's a possibility that we may possibly ticket or tow, possibly to make sure that this possibly doesn't happen in the future, you should possibly pay. And it's like all these really like general generic words like, hey, we might one day possibly do something to you. And I'm looking at this on the front and back and go, this isn't worth the paper that it's printed on. Like this, this, this isn't even a threat of something. Like you're not saying you're going to do something, you're saying you might possibly one day do something. Like, I parked in your lot, I didn't pay, I didn't get towed, I didn't get ticketed, I still don't have to pay, and if I come back again, I'm probably not going to pay again then either, right? (laughs) So, what's the point of that? Like, you're paying somebody 
to go around and put these notices on people's cars that have no ramifications. There's no teeth to it. If God were like that, hey, I've got a bunch of rules and you can kind of follow them if you want to. You can follow them if you don't. And if you don't follow them, you're just forgiven anyways. It's just like, okay, well, why bother? That would violate God's justice. So God says, okay, I need to hold people accountable for their sin. So I have to judge their sin. But here's God. I don't want to judge them for their sin. I want to be gracious. I actually want to forgive their sins. So God hatched a plan in eternity past for you and I to send his son, Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, to be born in a stable in Bethlehem as a baby who would one day grow up to bear the sins of mankind. It's one of the song that we heard this morning. I love the idea that tiny brow of that baby was being prepared for a crown of thorns that would be shoved on him as he was spat upon in his face. Why? Because of my sin and yours. That's the big deal with this. That's why we must do away with the idea that God is indifferent towards or in some way soft on sin. Like, it's okay. It's not a big deal. You've sinned. God forgives. That's what he does. That's why grace is there, that if you just want to keep sinning, you're more than welcome to do that. That's not biblical grace. Again, we'll get to this when we get to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 says we're God, where mankind's sin came in, God's grace abounded more than our sin. God's grace will always be greater than your sin. And so then I imagine people at the church at Rome were scratching their head going, wait a minute. If I sin a little, God gives a little bit more grace. But if I sin a lot, God gives a lot more grace. Then I can just live how I want to, right? Then Romans chapter 6, verse number 1. So what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the answer was, God forbid. forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Romans chapter 6 makes the case of this. Hey, you've been set free from the bondage of your sin. Why would you go back? You've just had a life sentence, a death sentence, commuted and you've walked out a free man, not on some technicality, but on the fact that your debt has already been paid. You've been set free as an innocent man or woman, and what, you're gonna go back to death row again? Why? That just doesn't even make sense. But there's this idea today in modern day Christianity that sin is not a word that we like to talk about because it makes people feel guilty. Sin we shouldn't talk about because it makes people feel bad. You don't tell people that they're sinners. You tell people that we make mistakes from time to time. We don't use the word sin. We like words like shortcomings or, uh, you know, character faults and things like that. The Bible calls it sin. And you and I didn't need a savior from our character faults. We didn't need a savior from our shortcomings. We needed a savior from our sin. That's the problem. And so there's this idea, again, that we can sin as much as we want. God God made you just the way that you are. All of your failures and faults, warts and everything, God made you that way. Your life is messy, and God knows it's messy, and he's okay. Just pray that he'll bless the mess. You know, it's just like, wait, hold up, what? 
And it trends to what theologians would call antinomianism. If you're taking notes, you should write down that word, antinomianism, and do some research on it later. The word namos is the, the word that's used for the law. Anti-namos would be against the law, no law. So you can kind of think of almost of, of it as anarchy, if you will. Do whatever you want, however you want. God's grace covers it all. Uh, you don't, sometimes you don't even need to ask forgiveness for your sin because gra- God's grace is just always there. Uh, and, you know, he knows you're going to make mistakes, and he loves you anyways. The problem is that's only a half-truth. Does God know you're going to make mistakes? For sure. Does his grace cover your sin? For sure. Does God care that you continue in your sin? Absolutely. Why? Because your sin, my sin, put his only son to death. Jesus was publicly humiliated, spat upon, beaten within an inch of his life, and executed for one reason and one reason only, and that was sin. And the idea that God is just like soft on sin, just like, ah, it's not that big of a deal. That's not who God is. Now, there's the opposite end of the spectrum. There's a ditch on both sides of the road. One is antinomianism on one side, and the other side is what we would call legalism. Legalism is God has a list of rules that are set. Unless you check off every single one of them, God hates your guts. And so God will never be pleased with your life until you are perfect, until you hit all of the rules. And the problem with legalism is the rules are always evolving, just like the Pharisees. They would make up rules that weren't even really in Scripture just to make sure that they stayed on track. And so uh, that's, uh, again, another just the, the truth lies somewhere in the middle. Does God want you to walk in righteousness and holiness and obedience? Absolutely. Is God's grace available for when you fail and when you sin against God? Absolutely. Can we sin against the grace of God, expecting God to just automatically forgive? No. Should we keep a list of rules so that God won't hit us with a lightning bolt? No. We love God and we want to obey Him and we want to walk in obedience and glorify Him with our lives. We want to obey His instructions because His instructions are there for our benefit. And so... Sin never honors God. And so as we get to verse number five in our text this morning, Paul says, for if our unrighteousness commend, that word commend means demonstrates, the righteousness of God, what shall we say? So there was this foolish argument of how our sinfulness demonstrates and exalts God's holiness, so our sin is actually beneficial because it makes God appear more righteous. So before you, if you're taking notes, just pause for just a second. Let me say this real quick, okay? It's like this. God's holiness is up here, and this is his expectation for you and I. This is who he is. The more that you and I sin and get away from God's holiness, the more holy God appears. So technically, the more that you and I sin, the greater it glorifies God. And Paul's like, what? That doesn't even make sense. We cannot exalt God's holiness to a higher level by celebrating our sinfulness. It doesn't work. And the idea was, now look at this disparity, how holy God is. No, no, no. God is glorified as you and I are made holy like Christ. It's the opposite of the argument that they were making. And Paul was like, how can our unrighteousness demonstrate the grace of God? Now, he says here at the end of verse number five, I speak as a man. He's not saying this isn't really part of the Bible or this is just Paul's opinion. He's basically saying, I'm making the argument that I've heard other people make as men. 
Hey, for people that don't even know the Bible, this, this idea, this argument doesn't even make sense for people who don't know the Bible. And so in this case here, it's, he says, if that were true, my sin glorifies God, then God would be wrong for punishing sin. So take a look at verse number five. But if our unrighteousness, our sin, demonstrates how righteous God is, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who taketh vengeance? So again, the more that I sin, God gets more glory, then how can God punish me? He can't. God would be wrong to punish you and I for sin if our sin glorified him. Paul's like, this is a loop that never ends. Like you and I sin against the grace of God and God looks better, but God can't punish us because we're making him look better by sinning more. He's just like, this is the most ridiculous argument I've ever heard in my life. It just doesn't make sense because God must punish sin. From the beginning of biblical history, God says this, because you've ate of the tree that I told you not to eat from, here's the consequences. You're cast out of the garden forever. Man, you'll eat from here forward by the sweat of your own brow. Woman, you'll have pain during childbirth and you will be subject to the authority of man because of your sin. God, from the very beginning, the first sin that took place on earth amongst human beings, God immediately punished. This uh, kicked off an interesting uh, conversation amongst our teens as well as we began to talk about righteousness and unrighteousness and God's sovereignty and things like that. The question was, well, did sin originate with God? Did God create sin? And if Satan rebelled against God before the creation of mankind was the original sin, did it actually begin with Satan? And they began to ask all these deep theological questions. Now, I don't know if they were truly curious or if they were just trying to fill time so they didn't actually have to pay attention. I've been guilty of that before as a teenager. But uh, I hope that their minds were stirred to curious theological questions. But then the, the idea comes from that there was a rebellion in heaven when Satan rebelled against God and the, was cast out of heaven with his demons, with the, the fallen angels, and they weren't cast into hell where Satan is there with a pitchfork poking people and laughing. They were cast out to earth where Satan now began to deceive others to rebel against God's authority as well. And so that's where we find ourselves. So Satan and his demons are still here on planet earth seeking to cause a rebellion against God. And so the idea then again that God's not going to punish sin just goes against all of scripture. God punished Satan whenever he rebelled against God in heaven, cast him out of heaven. God punished Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden when they rebelled against God. Leviticus, 28 verse, uh, uh, Leviticus 26, verse number 18, if you'll not yet hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. Isaiah 13, 11, I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked of their iniquity. I will cause the arrogancy of the proud to cease and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now again, the death that Romans 6.23 speaks of is not simply a physical death, it's a spiritual death. Revelation chapter 20 talks about the great white throne judgment. That, that see the, the death and hell were cast into the, the, the lake that burns with eternal fire. This is the second, all whose names are not found written in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So it tells us God's judgment will always be upon sin. 
God must judge sin. So there can't be this crazy argument where you and I sin and then God can't punish us because our sin makes God look good. It's a foolish argument. So again, God would have, wouldn't have the ability to exercise judgment against sin if it was glorifying to him. Take a look at verse number eight. I'm sorry, verse number six. So if God is unrighteous in taking vengeance or punishing sin, then how shall God judge the world? If it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment, what's God gonna judge if he can't punish sin? If God can't judge mankind according to his law, if you've created this idea in your brain that our sin somehow glorifies God, then God can't punish our sin, then how can God judge mankind? By what standard? The whole thing is a a crazy argument that doesn't have any validity to it whatsoever. Romans chapter two, verse number five says, but after the hardness and impenitent heart treasures up thyself unto wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Psalm 9, eight, he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. Psalm 98, nine, before the Lord, he comes to judge the earth with righteousness shall he judge the world and the people with equity. So again, God's justice requires that he provides judgment. So God can't just let sin slide. God can't let sin go unpunished. God requires that a payment must be made for sin. And nobody gets a free pass on that. So then we come to the question that we see in verse number eight. Some people were making making Paul out to say things that he wasn't saying as be slanderously reported, and some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. So can God bring good and glory from sin? Hmm. Interesting question, huh? Can God take something that was a sin and turn it into something good? The answer to that is absolutely yes. God delights in restorative and redemptive work. That's what he does. You want proof? God took your sick, wicked, broken life and turned it into something beautiful. That's proof positive right there of God's restorative and redemptive work. That's what he does. I love the word redemption in the Bible. The word redemption means to purchase back. So God through his son Jesus Christ, redeemed those of you that are born again, that have been saved. God purchased your soul back from the slave market of sin. Now, some people have the wrong theology that our sin belonged to the devil and God had to pay the devil to get our souls back. First of all, God doesn't know the devil nothing. And if he wanted something from the devil, he'd just take it. Secondly, if you take a look at Romans chapter 6, you and I were slaves to our sin. Slaves to unrighteousness. And we were redeemed. We were purchased back from our lifestyle of rebellion. Purchased back from a life of sin. Purchased back from slavery to sin to become the sons and daughters of God. We're now redeemed as children of God that belong to God because we've been purchased, bought back. And what we were bought back with was the highest price that could ever be paid the blood of God's only son. That's what you're worth. 
That's your value to God. That's what he paid to redeem you. And so God takes the things that are broken and he buys them back and, and puts them back together. God also does a restoration work as well. I love the idea of restoration. You know, when you restore things, you've got a couple different options of the way that you can restore them. Um, my very first car when I was in high school was a 1965 Ford Mustang Coupe, two-door, 289, two-barrel engine. And so me and my dad began to work on this, this car and began to uh, restore it. Now, there's a couple different ways you can restore it. You can restore it back to the factory specifications. Uh, the one that I bought, it came with hubcaps on it that were absolutely atrocious looking. Came with a little 289 engine with a two-barrel carburetor on there that was just super tiny and wouldn't get up and go, wouldn't go anywhere. It came with these little skinny tires on the front and the back and uh, things along those lines. And it was just, it was okay. But when we decided to restore it, we didn't restore it back to factory specs. We restored it back to better than. Put a Holly 600 four-barrel carburetor on the top of it to get a little bit more punch off the gate. Put a different rear end to make it lower gear rear end. It'll be faster from the takeoff. Put a little bit wider tires on the back and got some aluminum rally wheels to put on it instead. Put a bump and sound system in it with a subwoofer in the trunk of it, right? So I could bump my tunes when I'm going down the road. Put air conditioning in it. Man, I talk about restoring you see, when we think of God's restoration, we think that God just gets us back to zero. God doesn't do that. God always makes things back better than they were before. Amen. Always. That's the hard part about talking with people about their marriage and when people get to the idea where they're throwing around the D word when it comes to marriage. And we don't say the D word because it should never become past your lips, ever. But when we begin to talk about things like the D word in marriage, generally we've gotten to a point where we say this is unfixable. What's broken cannot be restored. I'm going to say, sit down with people, and I begin to tell them, hey, God wants to do a restoration work in your marriage. They misunderstand restoration, and they think that God wants to get them back to where they were. Pastor, I don't want to get back to the way that things were. We've been in a loveless marriage for 10 years. Pastor, I don't want to be in a, go back to the way things were with him. He's neglected me for the past 15 years. I'm not trying to get you to go back to where you were. I'm trying to get you to go back to where God always intended you to be. Better than what you were. That's how God restores. That's how God redeems. So when you and I break God's law, can we get negative consequences from that? You can guarantee that we will. But God wants to, in response to our obedience, restore and he wants to redeem. But here's the important thing. If you make, if you sin against God and rebel against God, you're going to see God's judgment on that. If you're a child of God, you'll be chastised for it. If you continue to rebel against the grace of God, rebel against the commandments of God, you're going to continue to see God's chastisement in your life if you're a child of God. You're going to continue to see God's punishment if you're not a child of God. Either way, it continues to go bad. And as you continue to sin against God, things begin to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. That's just how it works. But, get this, if you're willing to come to God in repentance and obedience, then God says, oh, I can work with this, and he begins the redemptive and restorative work that only he can do. But that's dependent on you saying, 
I'm done rebelling against God. I just want to walk in obedience. Can God take this one situation that was terrible and bring something good from that? Absolutely, God delights in those things. But if this one decision that you made or one situation is a string of poor decisions that you're going to continue to make for the rest of your life, God says, okay, I'm going to let you have what you want. And so again, whether or not God turns your sin into something beautiful that he can be glorified through depends solely on your response to God's chastisement in your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 30, but you're, you're of him in Christ Jesus, who of God has made us wisdom, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1, 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, one of the greatest verses in all the New Testament. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. God doesn't want to just patch you up and put some bandages on you and send you back out there. God wants to take you down to the studs and rebuild you back better than ever. He wants to make a new creation out of you if you're willing to obey him. Again, if you continue to make poor decisions and continue to rebel against the grace of God, God has no obligation to redeem and restore what's broken in your life. So, can God continue to accomplish his will and be glorified despite our foolishness and sinfulness? So you and I act foolishly. We sin against God. Can God's will still be accomplished? Can God's plan still come to fruition? Again, you and I are foolish if you think that we're so strong that we could break God's plan, that we could break God's will. Now again, you can sell yourself short and get less than God's best, but God's plan, God's will will still be accomplished despite your sinfulness, despite your foolishness. So absolutely, yes, God's sovereign will continues to unfold despite our own shortcomings. My wife and I began dating in, in January and we got engaged by April and then we got married about 40 days later at the end of May. Really quick, really short, I'll say this, really foolish timeline. I don't recommend it to anybody. Uh, I, I don't believe that that's the way that it should be done. If my kids came to me and said, hey, you know, I just got engaged. I think we're going to get married in a month and a half. It's a bad idea. Put the brakes on. We got zero premarital counseling, none whatsoever. Neither of us were in church at the time. We didn't have a pastor to provide us guidance. I mean, it's just foolish as foolish could be. I would even go so far as to say it was sinful, not in the fact of sexual immorality, but, but, but sinful in the fact that I was proud and I just wanted what I wanted. I didn't think to myself like, oh, I want to build a family that glorifies and honors God and I get to serve God with this beautiful person for the rest of my life. I didn't think of none of that. I thought, man, this girl is smoking hot. I don't want her to get away. I don't want some other guy to get her. And I don't want her to figure out what she wound up with. So I got to put a ring on it and get her down the aisle, get it over with, and then she's hooked for life. That was my thought. So again, from that aspect, again, just desiring what I want, living from a, a, a selfish perspective, I would even say that it was sinful. Has God redeemed that? Absolutely, yes. Why? Because there came a point where we set aside foolishness, 
and we began to pursue wisdom. We set aside sinfulness and began to pursue righteousness. And then God says, hey, I can work with this. I'm going to make something beautiful out of this. Had we continued a life of sinfulness and a life of foolishness, I can tell you that it wouldn't be what it is today. I can tell you had we pursued a life of sinfulness and foolishness, you wouldn't be seated in this auditorium this morning because this church wouldn't exist. So despite the fact that when we got married, I was 21, I thought I had it all planned out and I knew about life at 21, right? Despite the fact that I didn't know what I didn't know, God took that and redeemed it and used it as something for his glory. So can God take sinfulness and foolishness and redeem them? Absolutely. That's precisely what God does. Again, when Angela and I first got married, we didn't know that we were, uh, that the things that we were doing were sinful. We just didn't know any better. We didn't, we didn't know that we were supposed to pray together as a couple and we're supposed to, you know, do all the things we were supposed to do. I didn't know it. We were ignorant. But again, when given the opportunity to pursue wisdom, we did, and God's blessed our life as a result of that. So can we sin willingly in hopes that God will restore, redeem, and be glorified? You know the answer to this, but I can't tell you how many times I've sat across the table from a man who's contemplating leaving his wife. It's a heartbreaking conversation to have. And then to hear people try to spiritualize it. Well, I know it's a sin, but I know God forgives sin. No, it doesn't work that way. Well, no, I know God's going to forgive me. And again, this is how you know that people are biblically illiterate. They say, well, you know, David sinned against God and God still used David. It's just like, hold up for a second. Have you read like David's whole story? Like, have you ever read the Bible before? David sinned with Bathsheba and God still used his life. Okay, David sinned with Bathsheba, had a child out of wedlock with Bathsheba, had Bathsheba's husband murdered, the baby was born, the baby died, David had children from multiple different wives, he had a son named Absalom who hated his guts because he was a terrible father. And Absalom tried to have him killed and tried to turn David's own people against him so much that David ran and hid in a cave from his own son. After his own son was killed by one of the men that worked for him, he has another son while he's laying on his deathbed who tries to steal the kingdom away from his dad when it's not rightfully his. And then the son who is the rightful heir of the throne, Solomon, ends up turning his back on God and his faith and raises two boys who split the kingdom in half? I'm sorry, was this your example of how everything works out when you disobey God? Because I'm not seeing it there. I'm seeing somebody who made a terrible decision and everybody around them paid the price for their sin. That's what I see. So again, when we look at this and the idea that like, well, I can sin, but God forgives sin. Don't ever presume on the grace of God Again, absolutely not can we sin against God's grace and just hope that he covers it. We cannot presume on the grace of God. <laughs> it's always interesting to me, again, people to say, well, I, you know, well, I, I'm going to leave my wife because I deserve to be happy. How do you know what happiness is? 
You obviously don't if you think happiness found in an immoral sexual relationship. That's not happiness. Happiness is found in pursuing Christ. Joy outlasts happiness any day of the week. And joy comes from the fruit of the Holy Spirit at work in your life. If you're involved in a sexually immoral relationship, you've quenched the Holy Spirit and you have no joy in your life. So again, these things don't even add up. And to say that God is going to, God is obligated to bring good from your sin is a misunderstanding of God's grace. It doesn't work that way. So again, as we look at this passage and Paul says again, verse number eight here, let us do evil that good may come. That's, that's a terrible argument. That's foolish. I'm going to sin and God's going to bring something good from it. This isn't in your notes, but you should write this down. I tell people this all the time, but they don't listen to me. If you want God's blessings on your life, you have to do things God's way. You see, we want to do things our way and then we want God to bless it. I want to get into involved in a sinful relationship and ask God to bless that. It doesn't work that way. I want to follow my heart and do my own thing and then I want God to bless that. It doesn't work that way. I want to get myself into copious amounts of credit card debt or consumer debt and then I can't pay my bills and I want God to bless me financially to get me out of debt. It doesn't work that way. I want to steal from God by not giving him what he asks of me, which is the tithe, and then I want God to bless my finances. It doesn't work that way. If you want God's blessings, you have to do things God's way, 100% of the time. Now, again, is God gracious? Sometimes he is. Again, my wife didn't marry a pastor. She married a 21-year-old kid who was E5 in the Navy who was trying to figure life out. I didn't marry a pastor's wife. I married a gal who had a cursory understanding of even her own salvation and little to no understanding of the Bible whatsoever. Was God gracious? For sure. But for every story like ours where God was gracious, I can point you to 150 where it didn't end up so well. So we can't just automatically presume God's going to bless this. I'm going to chase after my heart, do things my own way because it worked out for somebody else. You cannot presume on the grace of God. And if you want God's blessings, you must do things God's way. There's no shortcut to that. Three final thoughts here about this passage and we're done. First of all, you're free to choose your sin, but you cannot choose your own consequences. God is obligated to punish sin. He has to. If you're a child of God, God doesn't punish you from a punitive standpoint. God chastises you. He lovingly disciplines you, spanks you to get your attention, to get you back to doing the right thing. And just know this, God is willing, if you're his child, to make your life as painful as possible to bring you back to a place of repentance. That's how much he loves you. And I'm not, I'm not trying to scare anybody or freak you out or anything like that. I'm just saying, in the instance of David, because David had sinned against God, God was willing to chastise him to the point of taking the life of his own child to get his attention to turn him back to repentance. Don't think that God wouldn't do the same thing to you and I. So again, I'm not trying to play games with God. I'm not trying to sin against God and hope that God doesn't judge me too harshly because God is obligated to deal with sin. He has to. So again, how he judges sin is completely and totally up to him. 
Hebrews 12 says, For the, who the Lord loves, he chastens and scourgeth every son who he receives. I don't want to invite God's chastisement into my life and the life of my family. I don't want my children to be judged by God because of my own sin. And again, people are like, well, God doesn't judge your kids because of your sin. You need to read the Bible. You really do. Here's what happened. God told David, don't count Israel. Don't number them. I got you. doesn't matter how many men you have ready to fight. I will always be your strength. And David said, okay. And then David says, hey, guys, I think I just need a quick count to make me feel better. Could you go and number Israel for me and find out how many men we have that are ready to fight? I know God told me not to, but I'm going to do it anyways. David numbered Israel. Here's what happened. God sent the death angel upon Israel, and 70,000 people died until David made a sacrifice before God to get God to stop. He came back and repented. 70,000 people. God didn't strike David dead. God didn't strike David's kids dead. 70,000 other people God struck dead. And get this, there were some kids that night who said, hey, mommy, when's dad coming home? Yes, sweetheart, he's not. What happened? It's King David's fault, babe. It's, it's complicated. Well, tell me what happened. King David disobeyed God and daddy's not coming home tonight. Think about that for a second. Again, when well, my sin only affects me and I'm willing to take the, the punishment for my sin. No, your sin doesn't only affect you and you can't stand the punishment of God. You can't afford it. Price is too high, don't do it. Next. Grace that's indifferent to sin or abused as a license to sin is cheap grace. Oh, Jesus died on the cross so I can watch R-rated movies and look at pornography and I don't have to feel the consequences of it. You're cheapening the grace of God. Galatians tells us that grace was not given to us as a license or permission to sin, but it's given to us as freedom to be able to love and serve each other. Hey, I'm not under the law anymore. You know what that means? That means I get to love other people and serve them well. Hey, I'm not under the law anymore. That means I get to extend grace to other people who have wronged me and get to worship God freely, not out of obligation. And again, the idea that God's grace means I can live ever how I want to and then God's obligated to forgive me or even bless me is just anti-biblical. God hates sin with every fiber of his being and it was the only reason why his son was publicly humiliated and executed. God is not soft on sin. Don't play with it. Not worth it. Final thought. God's glory and his blessings are magnified through an obedient, consecrated, surrendered life. Again, God's not glorified the more sinful you and I are so it makes God appear more righteous and holy. No, no, no. God is glorified when you and I are holy as he is holy. God is glorified when you and I are conformed to the image of Christ. God is glorified when you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit and we begin to show love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. That's how God is glorified. 
not by our sin. That's just foolish talk. What does God want from us? He wants to be glorified. How is God glorified? Through our worship. And again, if you think worship just means song, singing songs on a Sunday morning before I preach, you don't understand worship. God wants to be glorified through our worship and through our submitted, surrendered life of service to him. Revelation chapter 4, 11, why were we created? We were created for Jesus Christ's pleasure. That's it. So then the question I have to ask, am I living to glorify God this week? Does my, is my life pleasing to him? Or then have I made excuses about areas of my life where, yeah, of course I've got sin, everybody's got sin, but God forgives my sin. Stop it with that. And understand, anytime you have to make excuses for your sin, you're just indulging in carnality. <laughs> Again, people say, that, well, I, I, was, I was born this way. You know, that's a, a common refrain for those who are in, in homosexual relationships. Well, I was born this way, I didn't choose this, and as if that gives them an escape. I'll say this, I never chose to be proud and I never chose to be angry. I was born that way. But it's also an offense before God that must be put to death. I, I cannot say, well, I'm just an angry person. Everybody's got their problem. That's who I am. I'm just a proud person. Everybody's got, that, got their problems. That's who I am. I'm just a lustful person. That's who I am. I'm just a, a person who, you know, likes to look at people the opposite sex a little while. No, no, no. Stop making excuses for your sin and call it what it is. That's what glorifies God, repentance, submission, obedience. And please, if for a split second think that you think that you can disobey God and God's going to bless your life or be glorified through it, you need to think again. Because God is honored when we're submitted and surrendered to him. Most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you don't know for sure that you're saved, your sin rests squarely on your shoulders and you will bear the punishment for your sin until you place it on Jesus. I'm asking you today, put your faith in Jesus to save you from your sin. You'll be so glad that you did. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church Podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m.